In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajal farajahum. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome once again to our... We have narrations that explicitly state a number of things as being responsibilities or duties of the scholar. And some of them, I think, deserve a slightly closer attention given that we're discussing the role of the scholar specifically. The last time we discussed, for instance, the importance of being humble for the scholar, being humble towards the people who are learning, so their own students. And so this is the very restricted way of looking at that hadith, to respect the learner, one's learners, and to respect one's teachers especially religious teachers. But we said beyond this specific, um, this hadith specifically addressing the teacher or specifically addressing the student with regards to their teacher, this hadith actually applies to everyone in society or everyone in an Islamic community that anyone who is seeking knowledge ought to be respected because they are a seeker of knowledge. And anyone who shares Islamic knowledge, religious knowledge ought to be respected, whether they are my teacher or not, whether they are my student or not. It is even more emphasized when it is my teacher or my student. But regardless, in a proper, ideal Islamic community, these are instructions or teachings that should be observed. We saw a hadith talking about the importance of teaching. And so that hadith specifically was saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not make learning obligatory or incumbent upon those who are interested in learning or who want to learn, those who are without knowledge, until he made it obligatory for those who have knowledge to teach it and to spread it. And so this is to emphasize the role, the primary role, the first role is for the teachers to teach. And logically, as we said, it makes sense. You can want to learn all you want. If there's no one sharing, no one teaching, then you can't really go any further. And so logically, in the order of things, of course, things should start with someone sharing knowledge for there to be people who can acquire that knowledge and learn it. The other hadith that we looked at had to do with the types of teachers and we said or the types of people who have acquired knowledge to be more precise and so that was the metaphor from the holy prophet in which he was saying that people are like the rain that lands on earth and they come in different categories and so the best category are those who are like the rain that lands on very fertile land and then that land not only absorbs the rain, takes all the rain in. And we saw different examples of this in the Holy Quran. They're useless for themselves, but at least they're being useful to others. And then we saw those who don't teach and they remain completely indifferent to the information that they are receiving. So they learn, 
but they don't act based on the knowledge and they don't even spread it to others. And then the worst category are those who learn and then they act in a way that is contradictory to what they learned. And in that case, they are not only useless, but they are actually harmful to themselves for sure and perhaps to others as well. In any case, so inshallah, today we continue with this main duty of the teacher or the scholar. And we said the main duty, and we're looking at it from different angles, the main duty of this teacher or the scholar is to teach, is to share and to spread the information. So the first um, uh, narration or the first scripture that we're looking at, because it's not a narration, it's a verse from the Holy Quran or a series of verses from the Holy Quran. And I didn't want to spend too much time on it. Inshallah, we will come back to it in more detail. We're looking at it from different angles every time we mention it. But it is the story of Prophet Musa alayhi salam with the servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned in Surah Al-Kahf. Right, the, around verse 60, and for 23 verses, the Holy Quran tells us the story of Prophet Musa السلام, with a man that the Holy Quran describes as being one of our servants to whom we have granted mercy and to whom we have taught from ourselves, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, from us, we gave him knowledge. This is a divine type of knowledge. And so the story starts. And Certainly for the topic that we're talking about, the topic of teaching, there is definitely that dimension, but there is more. So this is why we're saying there are angles to teaching. One of them has to do with, do I teach whomever all the time and everything do I know that, that I know? Is that what teaching means? Everything that I know has to be shared with every, time, with every person who wants it or doesn't want it all the time? Or are there some conditions? And this is the first, one of the first things that should strike us in this story, that this is exactly the case where Prophet Musa السلام, comes to this abd, the servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, seeking knowledge. This was the whole point of the journey. We can go through the verses very quickly. I didn't want to spend too much time on it. The whole, there's a journey that Prophet Musa السلام, is undertaking. There's a whole project. Prophet Musa السلام, is going out of his way to be on a mission to learn, to meet this person and to learn from him. And yet when he reaches, finally he meets this man. He tells him very respectfully, in a very dignified way, in a very submissive way, he tells him, will you allow me to be your student, to follow you and to learn from what you have been taught, from the guidance that you carry? Will you allow me to follow you? And the answer is no. And so this becomes another lesson. This is a highlight that while he has all this knowledge, not all knowledge needs to be shared with everyone. And this is Prophet Musa salam. For those who were with us in the theology, the belief series, we said that prophets come in different ranks too. The Holy Quran says, some of them we have favored over others. There are prophets who are only prophets and there are prophets who are also messengers. And in the messengers, not everyone is at the same rank. And so we have Ulil Azm, the five, the five messengers who were the ones who demonstrated the greatest resolute, the, the most resolute, the greatest resolution and commitment, perseverance, resilience, and so on and so forth. And they reached, therefore, the greatest ranks. Prophet Musa is one of the five. 
one of the greatest five messengers. And he takes this arduous journey. He goes out of his way to meet this man, to learn from him. And yet this man finally, when he meets him, he tells him, no, I won't teach you. But he gives him a reason. So we look at the verses very quickly. This is when the, the story starts. Already in this verse, in verse 60, we have a whole bunch of indications. The first one is when Prophet Musa said to his lad, who was Yusha bin Noon most likely, I will go on traveling, I will go on journeying until I have reached the confluence of the two seas, Majma al Bahrain. Most likely this is the Red Sea because the Red Sea at some point splits in two, two gulfs, right? So this is near between, uh, on this side you have Yemen and the Arabian Peninsula and on that side you have Egypt, that region. So right at the bottom you have the land that forms kind of like a triangle and so the water splits, the water of the Red Sea splits into two gulfs. So most likely this is where he was. So he says, I will not, con- I will not stop journeying, looking, until I reach the spot, there is some spot that we have to reach, until I reach that spot where the two seas meet, or I will continue on doing this for a very long time. Amdiya huqubah. A huqub is a very long period of time. And in fact, the Holy Quran uses it, and if you go back in the Ruwayat, Ahqaba in Surah Naba' لَابِثِينَ فِيهَا أَحْقَابًا Those will stay in hellfire for ahqab. So you go back to the Ruwayat, they say a huqub, a single huqub is 80 years. So it's not a century, it's not 100 years, it's 80 years. According to some, and there are other, other figures mentioned. In any case, it's supposed to be in, in normal Arabic language. A huqub is a lengthy period of time. Prophet Musa is saying, I am going on journeying, traveling, looking for what I'm supposed to be looking for even if it means that I have to do this for a very long period of time. So clearly we see this is very important for Prophet Musa He says, I won't stop doing this until I reach my destination. So what is this destination? That's when the Holy Quran says, When they finally reached the confluence, that's the whole story. He tells them, okay, we're hungry, we're tired. Why don't you get us our food? The food was supposed to be a fish that they had carried with them. And the fish suddenly escaped and swam away in the sea. And so this became a sign for Prophet Musa He knew that there was a sign. Now, I'm not going through the tafsir. We're not doing a full commentary on these verses. We would take a very long time here. There's three stories in Surah Al-Kahf. Each one of them could be a very lengthy series of lectures one of them is this story of Prophet Musa salam and al-Khidr. Every detail requires a whole interpretation and the commentary around it and you know centuries upon centuries of commentary from scholars that we could go through. In any case, so the fish either as a miracle or generally speaking, it wasn't perhaps dead. It was maybe attached or we don't know the details. The fish escapes. This Prophet Musa salam considered it to be a sign. And so he said, one way perhaps, he understood it is, we went a little too far, we have to go back. Okay, and so they go back, and then they finally find this Abd. فَوَجَدَ 
فلما جاوز قال لفتاه قال أرأيت إذ أوينا إلى الصخرة قال ذلك ما كنا نبغ That's exactly what we wanted It's a sign So they went back until فوجد عبدا من عبادنا آتيناه رحمة من عمدنا وعلمناه من لدنا علما When they went back there they found one of our servants the Quran says whom we had granted a mercy from ourselves Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one talking He said one, he was one of our servants. This is a great praise from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to actually refer to someone as my servant. Many of our scholars have said that the greatest praise we have of our holy prophet is that he is referred to as the servant. The one who has reached the perfection of servitude. Right? We have that in Surah Al-Isra. Subhanallahi asra bi'abdihi laylan. When in Surah Al-Isra, when it talks about the migration journey, the spiritual migration night journey of the Holy Prophet it refers to him as the servant, the servant. Okay, in any case. So when the Quran says our servant, it means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is attesting that this is someone who has really reached the level of being worthy, of being called by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala our servant. Okay, so already we know he's special. They found one of our servants. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says one more thing, and here a whole lot of different opinions on what this means. To whom we have granted mercy from ourselves. So of course he had received some special favors from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Most likely favors that have something to do with the knowledge he carries. But we don't know. Okay, and then the Quran becomes very explicit here and says... What else is special about him? So he's one of our servants. We have granted him mercy from ourselves. And we taught him a knowledge from us. So there's a teaching that has happened to this servant. And the teaching is directly from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to this servant. So this is not the type of knowledge that you acquire normally. This is not a lecture, this is not a book you read. This is a knowledge that we refer to before as a light that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts in your heart. And clearly we think this is because he earned it, he deserved it, he worked for this. And so he became worthy of this light, of this knowledge, to the point where a messenger like Prophet Musa salam wants to go and become his student. Okay, this is the type of knowledge that he has. Very different, very special. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, this is a knowledge we have taught him, a special type of knowledge. This is a servant that they found. And so, after this, this is 65. Musa السلام, told him, may I follow you for the purpose that you teach me some of the rushd, the guidance, the wisdom, the righteousness that you have been taught. And here again, first, this is Prophet Musa السلام, talking. And notice the respect. Notice the manner in which he asks, may I become your student? Will you allow me to be your follower? One. Two. Finally, Prophet Musa السلام, this is where we know that, this was the point of his whole trip. It wasn't just to meet this person. The mission was to find this person so that he may, he may become 
a student and a follower of this person. And again, this brings us back to the whole theme of knowledge. How far these prophets are going to go learn something that they may not have yet. Thirdly, he doesn't just tell him, I want you to share your knowledge with me. Prophet Musa salam said, هَلْ أَتَّبِعُكَ عَلَىٰ أَن تُعَلِّمَنِي So that you teach me what? You would think he would say, you teach me knowledge. مِمَّا عُلِّمْتَ رُشْدًا So knowledge is an instrument. What I want you to teach me, yes, we would call it knowledge because it's something I'm learning. But really what I want you to teach me is the wisdom, the guidance, the righteousness that you got out of this knowledge. Because knowledge by itself is nothing. This is not the merit. And Prophet Musa wants to go after what you do with the knowledge. We, we said, you know, knowledge has to lead to action, depends on the level of sincerity, it's transformational, it impacts your soul. That's what Prophet Musa is looking for. Not just the information. So he tells him, this is what, you, will you teach me that wisdom, guidance, righteousness? And perhaps we can say from this that, so if I want to become someone's follower, this is how this is done. This is the respect, the dignity, the submissiveness that goes with it, that I find this person because I care about this. This is something important to me. I'm following in the footsteps of Prophet Musa The Quran continues. It says, So the answer is, this servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, he told him, you cannot have patience to bear this with me. That's the short answer. And then he tells him why. He's not being harsh. He's not being rude. He's not being arrogant. He tells him there's a very good reason for this. And we talked about this, but now we're seeing it in the Quran. He tells him, وَكَيْفَ تَصْبِرُ عَلَى مَا لَمْ تُحَطْ بِهِ خُبْرًا And how are you to bear patiently, to endure something, when you have not yet received, not yet acquired the prerequisite knowledge for it. You're lacking elements, you're lacking pieces of knowledge that would allow you to bear patiently what I'm about to do or what I would teach you. You're missing key pieces. You can't just jump into learning this. You're not ready for this. You will not have the patience, therefore, to go through this. And this is the reason why he said no. And so this is a lesson for us too. That sometimes one of the reasons why you don't share the knowledge is because this way of sharing the knowledge will not be absorbed, will not be digested, will not be understood properly. It may do more harm than good. It will break the person as we will see in the, in the narrations. You break the person, you cut them off in a sense that they're no longer interested in religion. If this is what religion says, then I'm no longer interested in it. Because you were given information in a way that you were not ready to receive. You didn't have the prerequisites for it. There are things that you had to know first. Then when this information comes, it comes at the right time in the right way and it makes absolute sense. It's logical. There's an order to this. But when all of that was missing, he told him, no, you can't follow me. You won't have the patience to go through this. He continue in 69. قَالَ سَتَجِدُنِي إِنْ شَاءَ اللَّهِ صَابِرًا 
So Prophet Musa السلام, here, he says, you will find me, God willing, very patient. And I will not disobey you in any manner. So this is, you know, we were saying, notice how submissive and respectful he is. Here he is openly saying, this messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is openly telling this man, and I will not disobey you in any way, in anything. I'll obey everything you say, and I will be patient. Inshallah, I will have the patience to endure. I will try my best, and I will be as patient as I can. So this was not enough. More commitment is required. So here the teacher, he is basically saying, okay, fine, if your insistence, you're insisting this much, I will allow it, but he repeats it. قَالَ فَإِنِ اتَّبَعْتَنِي فَلَا تَسْأَلْنِي عَنْ شَيْءٍ حَتَّى أُحْدِثَ لَكَ مِنْهُ ذِكْرًا He says, if you follow me, then do not question me concerning anything until I, myself, mention it to you, explain it to you. You can't question. You observe, you watch, and then I'll explain what's happening to you later. So here again, I think it's clear, and we talked about it, on the side of the learner, the learner is going out of his way to explain his commitment. I will be a good student. I will be patient. I will try my best. I promise. Here he's saying, I will obey everything. And then the teacher repeats it as a matter of reminder, as a matter of insistence. He repeats this commitment. You are promising that you're going to commit to this. You're going to be patient. You're going to endure. You're not going to question, right? And then the Qur'an continues, and that's when the story starts, and I'm, I'm going to stop here. There's a lot more that uh, we can talk about. Inshallah, we'll come back to this. Maybe next week or the week after. We'll talk more about the etiquette of the teacher, the learner and the teacher in Islam. There's a lot more we can take out of this. But basically, the story goes into the, the three events, right? So first he encounters a ship, and then the, he encounters a a young boy perhaps, and then a broken wall that he fixes. And in every case, Prophet Musa objected to the manner in which the servant conducted himself. And in every case, the answer came, did I not tell you that you would not be able to bear this patiently with me? And then afterwards, he explained, when the third time, Prophet Musa, the second time, he told him, okay, if I question again and I object again, then that's it. You may leave me. I'll depart. I won't follow you anymore. So he imposed a restriction on himself. So when the third time he objected, he had already imposed on him, unfortunately, on himself, the condition that if he were to object, he would leave. And so he left. But before he leaves, the servant, most likely Al-Khadr salam, he explained the three events. And this is the, the teaching. This is the learning that took place. But even here, you notice another of the, inshallah, as I said, we'll come back to it, the manner in which the teacher is handling the student. There is no harshness. There's a deal between us. There's patience, there's resilience, there's endurance that is required. You're not displaying the things that are required to remain a student. 
But even in those cases, the teacher was patient. He would simply tell him in a cool way, in a com- without losing his composure, he would simply tell him, did I not tell you that you would not have the patience to follow me? Okay, so three times this happens, and then he explains, he finally gives the uh, explanation to Prophet Musa salam. And at the end, when Prophet Musa objected so strongly, when the behavior was taking place, now that the truth was presented to him, Prophet Musa salam did not object anymore. And so this is yet another thing we learn. Prophet Musa salam, as a learner, as a student, completely open, sincere to the truth. Now the truth has been presented to him. It was beyond his comprehension. But now he knows this is a truth being presented to him. He accepted it. There's no objection here anymore. And then, you know, dignified, respected, but broken, he left Al-Khadr. He left the servant after this. As I said, inshallah, there's a few more things we want to take out of this story. They're relevant to this relationship between learner and teacher. We wanted to highlight a couple of things that have to do with teaching. We're talking about the duties of the teacher. Here we want to make sure that it's clear when we're saying the main duty of the teacher is to teach. The main duty of the scholar, the main duty of the person who carries knowledge is to spread that knowledge. This is not absolute. There are conditions. There are ways to do this. There are situations where it is not to be shared or not to be shared in this way. And as I said, inshallah, we'll come back to some of the other dimensions of the story. We continue with teaching. Another heading related to teaching is that, and we touched on this at the beginning, we're coming back to this again. We talked about it when we talked about the learner and we talked about it when we talked about the teacher. The importance of only, as a teacher, only presenting the information that you completely master, that you have truly, really learned, completely under your control. That's when you are in a position confidently to talk about it. Otherwise, most likely it could mean that you haven't mastered it yet. There are holes. It's incomplete. You may have doubts about it. You should probably have doubts about it if you know that it's incomplete. And when in doubt, maintain silence. This is a general rule in Islam. And it applies a lot more to the person who wants to be lecturing or who wants to be teaching you don't talk about something that is not entirely under your control okay so first hadith even before the hadith i put it first i was going to end with this but i i guess i ended putting it uh, first in surah al-isra the holy quran says wala taqfu ma laysa laka bihi ilm inna as-sam'a wal-basara wal-fu'ada kullu ulaika kana anhu mas'ula don't go behind, don't pursue, don't undertake anything of which you do not have knowledge. Don't undertake, don't bring yourself into things of which you do not have knowledge. And there could be a lot of reasons. The reason the Holy Quran gives here, we could call it theological we could call it spiritual. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, the reason is because as-sam' wal-basar wal-fu'ad 
hearing, sight, and the mind or the heart, all of those are going to be, you are going to be held accountable for them. Everything you say, everything people hear from you, everything that changes people's minds, people's hearts, people, people's understanding of religion, you're accountable for this. There's a responsibility towards this. You don't enter into things that you do not know fully. Okay, that's in general. The hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam. He says, Al-alim man arafa qadrah wa bil mar'i jahlan alla ya'rifa qadrah. The scholar, the true scholar, is the one who knows, who recognizes or who knows his own worth. And it is sufficient ignorance, Imam Ali says, it's sufficient ignorance for a person not to know their worth. A true scholar knows their worth. So the way, perhaps, that some people might understand it is to say there's, this is a positive understanding, as in you know your merit, you are worth a lot, you should know how much you're worth. That's not really what the imam is talking about here. He's referring to the opposite, in fact. This is in relation to humility, to modesty, to not thinking that you're more important than you really are, more knowledgeable than you really are. And we're going to see, there's, this is a theme in our religion. Focus more on your ignorance. Don't focus on what you know. When you start focusing on what you know, you become self-reliant and self-sufficient. You say, what I have is enough. When you focus on your ignorance, you're always going to be motivated to grow, to get more, to seek more with the same passion, with the same drive, with the same motivation. So the knowledgeable one, the Imam says, is the one who recognizes their worth, as in, they know how small they are. They know how little they know. And it is sufficient ignorance. There's no more ignorance needed for someone to be ignorant, the Imam says. You don't need any more ignorance than not knowing your worth. Than forgetting how small you are. Forgetting how little you know. The other point related to this, there's a few points, but I don't want to talk too much about every hadith. I think one point related to this, very practically speaking, is the importance of being rigorous in, when we, in what we learn and when we learn. There's a very big difference between having a fuzzy, blurred, ambiguous understanding of what we know versus knowing exactly what we know and we don't know. When I follow a curriculum that has a beginning and an end, something that has been tested, something that has been validated by experts in a field, perhaps over generations and generations, and I know exactly what I have covered and what I still have to cover, that allows me to very specifically say, very accurately say, this is what I know, this is what I don't know. So it allows me to, very practically speaking, say, I should talk about this because I covered it. 
I learned enough about this that generally speaking, I, I don't know, looked at 60%, 80%, 100% of this topic. I've looked at it. I've learned it. I'm now in a position to talk about it competently. As opposed to not having a clue. In some cases, there are people who are in the religious world, for instance. They read, they listen to lectures, they attend lectures, conferences, courses. But if you were to really push them and see what do you actually know, they would not be able to tell you. I'm not saying that they didn't learn. They learned a lot. But they're not able to say, this is what I know. This is where I'm headed. I know what the journey looks like. I know what I have covered. I know how much more there is. It can't just be blurred and fuzzy and ambiguous and infinite. Yes, it is infinite. But generally speaking, there are things that allow you to be competent enough in a field. That you say, for instance, I know enough about the Holy Quran. I've learned it. Enough that I can teach others. Enough that I can talk about it competently. And I'm not going to, well, say things that are completely contradictory to truth. Or that I'm completely lost, so I'm not even sure. Should I be talking about this? Do I know enough? This means that there is an issue in your program, in your learning curriculum, in the teachers who taught you. And so you find yourself lost. You're not sure. How much do I know about this? How much allows me to say, I've covered the beginner level. I've covered the intermediary level. I'm actually an advanced student of this. You need to be able to say that. And so you have to make an effort if you are serious about learning, about acquiring knowledge, religious knowledge, try to make sure that it fits in some sort of program. Don't leave it random and to chance. Just picking up bits and pieces of information in all the fields all the time, but they don't really consistently fit into a system that you can say, yes, I have covered Islamic history. When you meet someone and they say, for instance, this is an expert in, what does that mean? How do we know? How were we able to say this is an expert in? It's because there's a curriculum and this person has gone through that curriculum, that program, they've covered it all. It doesn't mean that they know everything about the field. That's impossible. But they have acquired enough of it that they can competently say, I'm an expert in this field. Generally speaking, I know all of its foundations. I know what's the right and wrong. I know where to find information if I don't have it. I know who are the big experts, the big schools of thought, the big issues in all of this, the history of it, what people are debating today, what are the answers to these debates. But this requires a little bit of a, when you don't know, you don't know, so you're completely at the mercy of the lecturer at the mercy of the teacher, at the mercy of the book, at the curriculum that you're following. And so, to make sure that you're not wasting time and effort and energy, you have to sometimes ask some questions around this and make sure that if you are serious about acquiring knowledge, that somehow there is a general map in your mind and you know where you are on that map. Don't leave it completely to chance. Next hadith. This is a long sermon in which the Holy Prophet is giving advice to Imam Ali السلام. We're not going through it, maybe another day, inshallah. 
Here the Holy Prophet says, Ya Ali, من صفات المؤمن One of the characteristics of the believer, and in fact not one, there's about a hundred and some in this sermon if I remember, 103 I think, Ya Ali, من صفات المؤمن أن يكون جوال الفكر جوهري الذكر كثيرا علمه عظيما حلمه And then he goes on, so the Holy Prophet says, O oh Ali, one of the, some of the qualities of the believer is that. And so one of them, and this is, this is a beautiful, beautiful expression. This alone could become a series. When the Holy Prophet says, Literally we would say, with a mobile intellect. Jawal means that it's always traveling, going far distances. The Holy Prophet says the intellect of the believer is always moving in that way, always traveling, far-reaching, penetrating intellect. This is a characteristic of the believer. The true believer does not have a numbed mind. The mind is not passive. The mind is not asleep. The mind is on, bright, distant in the way it looks at things, how far it goes, right? So he says, the way I translated it between brackets for myself, my note to this was, the believer has a hyperactive mind. That's my my note here. Then the Holy Prophet says, One way we could say, we can translate this, maybe the Holy Prophet is saying that he radiates, he's radiant in his remembrance. But I don't think that's what the Holy Prophet means here. Jawhar in Arabic is the essence of something. So Jawhari al-dhikr is that his normal state, the believer, his essence, his automatic by default state, his essence is that he is in a state of remembrance. Jawhari al-dhikr. His jawhar is dhikr. His essence is always in a state of remembrance. Of course, this is connected to the intellect. You can't be in a state of remembrance. Remembrance is basically to be in a state of awareness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All the time. This is dhikr. The external manifestation of it is that you say, for instance, some dhikr with your utterances, with your words. You say, subhanallah, la ilaha illallah. This is dhikr. But this is the superficial level of it, which is required. This is what is needed to bring back the mind, to remind the mind, to awaken the mind. We're human beings. We're flesh and we're weak and we forget and we become heedless and we get distracted. You need something to remind you. Sometimes it might be difficult for me to spiritually put myself in that state. What do I do? I recite dhikr. I say the words a few times, 10, 20, 30, 70. The Holy Prophet is known. Every salat asr after the salah, he would say 70 times, Astaghfirullah Rabbi wa atubu The Holy Prophet, he needs to perform istighfar 70 times after the salah. But that alone, for someone like me, means that it's a hook to bring me back to wake up my mind, to bring it back into a state of Remembrance. The purpose is the spiritual state. 
In any case, the Holy Prophet says that, and then he continues. He says, "Katiran ilmu." The believer, one of the characteristics of the believer is that he has abundant knowledge. This is not a special believer. Min sifatil mu'min. The Holy Prophet is not saying this is a high-level, high-ranking wali, a saint from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No. The Holy Prophet, in fact, did not even say this is a scholar. I'm using the hadith for the scholar. The Holy Prophet is talking about the normal believer. The average believer ought to be someone with a vast amount of knowledge, abundant knowledge. كَثِيرًا عِلْمُهُ What else? عَظِيمًا حِلْمُهُ Remember the word of hilm, patience, wisdom, compassion. This trait of his, this patience of his is great. So this is some of the characteristics I wanted to mention them even though they touch on knowledge, even though that was not my point from this. I was talking about teaching and where we have to be careful. It's not just because I know enough about something that I should talk about it I have to make sure that I don't have doubts and suspicions and hesitations because I don't fully control this subject matter yet so the Holy Prophet says min al-muharramat." much later in the sermon he says min al-muharramat." he is innocent, he is clean, he is pure from all things that are prohibited sins he can't be accused of any sins he stops, he does not proceed when he encounters shubha, when he encounters doubt, when he has a doubt in religion. He doesn't proceed, he stops. So this applies a lot more to the scholar. Here the Holy Prophet is talking about the believer, the characteristics of the believer. Stopping at doubtful matters. The next hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam in the same vein. At first he says, لا تقل ما لا تعلم. Imam Ali alayhi salam says, do not say what you do not know. You don't know something? Don't say it. You only know it halfway? Don't say it. Because you don't know it. لا تقل ما لا تعلم فتتهم بإخبارك بما تعلم Why? The Imam here gives one answer. He, the Holy Quran gave us another. The Imam is giving us a very practical reason, very logical reason. He said, "He says, do not say those things of which you have no knowledge, because then you will be accused in the things about which you do have knowledge. You talk about things about which you have no knowledge, and people will say, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. There are shortcomings, there are mistakes, there are contradictions, it's incomplete. That's it. You lost credibility. Your word is no longer trustworthy. I don't know. This is just someone who is sharing their own personal opinions about something. This is not knowledge. I'll listen to what they have to say, but you know, they've made XYZ mistakes in the past. They don't know what they're talking about. So now you are talking about something you do have knowledge about. Imam Ali salam says, that's it. You will be accused. You will be accused when you talk about things about which you have knowledge. Why? Because you talked about things about which you had no knowledge. Whether you realize it or not, someone will 
catch that, someone will know. You were not in a position to talk about A, but you did. You are in a position to talk about B, but you've already lost your credibility. It's no longer trustworthy to listen to you talk about anything. Right? So anyways, that's one hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam. Another one. So this first one started with لا تقل ما لا تعلم Do not say, do not talk about that about which you have no knowledge. This one says لا تقل ما لا تعلم The Imam starts again the same way. Do not say anything about that which you have no knowledge. بل لا تقل كل ما تعلم In fact, do not say everything you know either. He's saying there are things about which you have no knowledge. Don't talk about those. What about the things you do have knowledge? Imam says you don't share all of those either. But this is very different reason. Right? In the first case, it's because you lack certainty. This is not knowledge. You are ruining your reputation, your credibility. Spiritually, it's horrible as the Holy Quran said. Everything you utter, everything people hear, people entering their minds, we're accountable for all of that. So that's the spiritual reason. Here the Imam adds the other one. This has to do with the whole topic of silence and judgment on around talking. Right? He says, in fact, even the things you have a lot of knowledge about, don't say everything you know about them either. Right? This is exactly. لا تقل ما لا تعلم بل لا تقل كل ما تعلم and then the Imam adds, so this is the more spiritual dimension of it. فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ سُبْحَانَهُ قَدْ فَرَضَ عَلَىٰ جَوَارِحِكَ كُلِّهَا فَرَائِضَ يَحْتَجُّ بِهَا عَلَيْكَ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ Why? He says because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, glorified is He, has imposed obligations upon all of the organs of your body, the Imam says. And He will hold you accountable for all of those on the day of resurrection. Everything you utter, Everything you say, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will ask you, why did you use this organ that I gave you in this way? You were not supposed to use it in this way. You had no knowledge about something. Why did you talk about it? The next hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says, There's two ways to understand ghaya in Arabic. Either you say, this is the furthest limit that the intellect can reach. Or you say, this is the goal, the ultimate goal. This is the ghaya. This is your destination. This is what you aim to reach. These are the two meanings. Imam Ali salam says, so both, because in Arabic that's how ghaya is used. The limit of what the intellect can reach or the ultimate goal of the intellect is to acknowledge its ignorance. It's for the intellect to say, I don't know. And so this is, again, reminder. This has to do with, perhaps before we called it, intellectual humility. This is not spiritual humility. There is a spiritual dimension to it. But this is not about only spiritual humility. There is an intellectual humility here. You recognize that you don't know much. And we're going to see that very clearly in, in the next uh, hadith. Imam Ali alayhi salam, 
I believe this one we looked at in the past. I'm not going to comment on it. I'll go very quickly. This is in the letter of the Imam. We said that it's attributed to the Imam as a letter written to perhaps Imam al-Hasan or Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyyah. He tells him, قَرَعْتُكَ بِأَنْوَاعِ الْجَهَالَاتِ لِأَلَّا تَعُدَّ نَفْسَكَ عَالِمًا I literally, the Imam says, I have struck you with. Okay, I have reminded you. I have listed for you. But in, in, in Arabic, the Imam is saying, I have struck you with these various forms, the various types of ignorance. So he has he listed all sorts of shortcomings of humanity in the past and in the soul so that you do not consider yourself knowledgeable. So you see how many of these apply to us. So don't fall on those shortcomings and start considering yourself being knowledgeable out of ignorance. Right? You're ignorant. You're not knowledgeable. The mom says, I reminded you of all of these types of ignorance so that you see they all apply to you. Okay? Don't think for a second that you are knowledgeable, that you are a scholar now. Okay? فَإِنْ وَرَدَ عَلَيْكَ شَيْءٌ تَعْرِفُهُ أَكْبَرْتَ ذَلِكَ فَإِنَّ الْعَالِمَ مَنْ عَرَفْ أَنَّ مَا يَعْلَمُ فِي مَا لَا يَعْلَمُ قَلِيلٌ If something you are familiar with is presented to you, something you know, you know it well, is now coming your way, consider that something great. Considering yourself ignorant. For the knowledgeable one is the one who knows that what he knows compared to that which he does not know is but little. He says, so when you encounter something, consider that almost a fluke. It's something great. I seem to have a bit of knowledge about this because the truth is I'm someone who is ignorant. But I do seem to have some familiarity with this notion, with this information. Okay, that's a general attitude. And then the Imam continues, فَعَدَّ نَفْسَهُ بِذَلِكَ جَاهِلًا This will lead the person to consider himself ignorant. فَازْدَادَ بِمَا عَرَفَ مِنْ ذَلِكَ فِي طَلَبِ الْعِلْمِ اجْتِهَادًا Now the Imam is going to list the benefits that come from considering yourself ignorant. Regardless of how much knowledge you have, the Imam is now going to list the benefits that come out of Considering yourself ignorant, focusing on your ignorance, not focusing on your knowledge. He says, This will lead, this will lead to considering himself ignorant, to exert more effort in seeking knowledge. That's one. If you feel like you don't know much, then you will put more effort into acquiring knowledge. Thus, knowledge will remain sought after. Desired, beneficial. These are different benefits of feeling like you don't know much. You will seek knowledge more, right? Knowledge will remain sought after, desired, beneficial. So you benefit from the knowledge the most by considering yourself ignorant, as opposed to someone who says, Yeah, yeah, I've heard this. When you hear a story, when you hear a verse of the Quran, when you hear, if your attitude is, yeah, yeah, I've heard this story. I've heard this verse. I know this dua. That, that means that's it. You've closed the door to benefiting from that knowledge. But if you consider yourself always to be in a state of ignorance, I'm always thirsty for more knowledge. Maybe this time, when I hear the verse, there's something new that will come into my mind. 
the same story, the same hadith. I have heard it 10 times, 50 times, 300 times before. Maybe something new will come out out of that for me. Now, because I put myself in that state of not arrogance, but humility. I'm ignorant. I'm trying to learn more. I have to learn more. The Imam continues, فَمَا يَزَالُ لِلْعِلْمِ وَفِيهِ وَلَهُ مُسْتَفِيدًا وَلِأَهْلِهِ خَاشِعًا مُهْتَمًا Even towards the people of knowledge, the Imam says, this person who puts himself as in a situation of being ignorant, not being the scholar who is self-sufficient, he will remain in a state خَاشِعًا مُهْتَمًا You will be in a state of humility before the people. And you will treat them as being people who are important because of their association with knowledge. And then, If you put yourself in a situation of I'm more ignorant than knowledgeable, then by default, your position is not therefore I should be talking all the time. Therefore I should be sharing my great wisdom and knowledge with all all the time. No. By default, your position is you keep your mouth shut. You remain silent. And then when you are in a situation where you see, no, no, I really have to force myself to share something. This is a situation that requires me spreading knowledge, sharing my knowledge, knowing that this is something I know well, well enough that it can be shared. Then I speak up. Completely different. Then the information that comes out comes out almost out of necessity. Imagine the trouble that would disappear from the world if we were in that situation. By default, people share what they know in a context where they feel that it needs to be shared. It needs to be shared. It must be shared now. Because all of this stems from, do I consider myself to start with? Am I a scholar? All knowledgeable? Or is my starting position one of ignorance. I deem myself to be ignorant. I'm more ignorant than knowledgeable. And that's what the Imam said. When you compare the true scholar, when he compares what he knows to what he doesn't know, he sees that what he knows is very little compared to what he doesn't know. So then how can your general position be that I talk? So the Imam says, لَزِمَ He holds silence. He is very cautious from errors. He doesn't want to make mistakes. He's very cautious. Unfortunately, people who talk a lot or people who consider themselves to be knowledgeable overly, they overconfidently, they will fall in a lot of mistakes and they don't care. It becomes second nature for them. It's okay that I'm inaccurate. It's okay that the information I share is incomplete. It's good enough. Most people will not speak up. Most people will not realize and that's good enough. I don't need to work harder to acquire more knowledge, to be more accurate. As opposed to this person that Imam Ali salam is describing, about whom he says, this person is very cautious from making mistakes. He wants to make sure that everything he says is accurate. Working hard to make sure that this is accurate information. He's embarrassed from making a mistake. He's shy or embarrassed. Again, unfortunately, sometimes you lose that sensitivity. You're no longer shy. You'll say, yeah, 
Of course, someone who talks, who lectures, who writes books, not everything is going to be perfect. There will be mistakes. That means that that sensitivity has gone away. Right? The Imam says, no, this person maintains that. They're always cautious. وَإِنْ وَرَدَ عَلَيْهِ مَا لَا يَعْرِفْ لَمْ يُنْكِرْ ذَلِكَ لِمَا قَرَّرَ بِهِ نَفْسُهُ مِنَ الْجَهَالَةِ And then when this person encounters that which they do not know, they're not familiar with this, something new suddenly crosses their path, a new piece of information. لَمْ يُنْكِرْ ذَلِكَ They don't deny it. Why? Because لِمَا قَرَّرَ بِهِ نَفْسَهُ مِنَ الْجَهَالَةِ Because his starting position he has already him deemed himself to be ignorant. So when I encounter something I haven't encountered before, I don't just automatically deny it. I don't know this, therefore it must be wrong. I haven't heard this before. How are you the criteria? If you haven't heard something before, it means that it must be wrong. And by the way, the Imam exactly talks about this later. I don't want to repeat it because we've covered this hadith in detail before from another angle. Okay, the Imam continues. And he says, The jahil considers all the ignorance he has as being knowledge. And then he has this narrow mind which will bring him to whenever he encounters something that he hasn't encountered before. Or if people object or question what he's saying, he says, no, how can it be? It's impossible. I don't know it. I don't think it. Therefore, it must be wrong. Whereas this person who starts from a position of, I'm ignorant. I don't know. I keep an open mind until I find the truth. Very big difference. The Imam is talking about things that would come much later, centuries later in philosophy, if you were to study philosophy. This is epistemology. What is possible to know? And what's your general attitude towards knowing? If you close the door from the beginning and say, I already know. Here the Imam says, your initial position is, I do not know. Because the truth is, I really don't know. What I know is so little compared to what I don't know. And by the way, the whole story of Prophet Musa salam, one of the main points is this. is to show how much more there is to know in the world compared to what we do know. There are other dimensions to reality, other ways of interpreting, understanding the world than superficial appearances. That's the story of Prophet Musa salam, and in fact the two other stories. The, the young man who went to the cave or the story of the Qarnayn. It's all about showing that the world has other dimensions, other realms, other layers of reality that we don't understand, which should make you very humble. There's so much more to the point where a messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has to go and learn it. And he is shown to not have even the patience to endure learning it. So therefore your position, your starting position should always be one of humility, one of modesty. Then there is a number of hadith that have to do with what I called the spirituality of admitting ignorance. A couple of ahadith, so that we don't spend too much time. The first one from Imam Ali alayhi salam. He says, وَأَنَّ الدُّنْيَا لَمْ تَكُنْ لِتَسْتَقِرْ إِلَّا عَلَى مَا جَعَلَهَا اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ مِنَ النَّعْمَاءِ وَالْإِبْتِلَاءِ وَالْجَزَاءِ فِي الْمَعَادِ 
He says, the world was not meant to settle except by what God has ordained in it, including all of its blessings, its tests, the rewards of the afterlife, or whatever else he wills of that which we do not have any knowledge. Okay, he says this is what the world is. It's made up of these things. The blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the challenges that we have in this world, the tests, the reward of the afterlife. That's it. The Imam combined everything, included everything you could think of in those categories. Everything in this world is either a blessing from God, a test from God, a matter of reward and punishment in the afterlife, or the Imam says, or whatever else that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wills and of which we have no knowledge. And then he says, فَإِنْ أَشْكَلَ عَلَيْكَ شَيْءٌ مِنْ ذَلِكَ So if ever you were to encounter anything that gives you trouble in understanding it, anything you encounter in this world that is مشكل, that is problematic, you have trouble understanding it. فَإِنْ أَشْكَلَ عَلَيْكَ شَيْءٌ مِنْ ذَلِكَ Attribute it to your ignorance of it. And then the Imam is going to give a very good argument here. He says, For when you were first created, you were created or you were initially created completely ignorant. What did you know? You knew nothing when you entered into this world. Your default position is ignorance. So when you encounter something you don't know, that should be very normal. Say, I don't know it. Attribute it to your ignorance and therefore work hard to understand it. Don't try to explain it away, dismiss it quickly with all the knowledge you already have. The Imam says, no, start from a position of ignorance. Attribute it to your ignorance. You were created ignorant. The Holy Quran talks about this. Right? The Quran says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has extracted you from the wombs of your mothers not knowing anything. And then he gave you, the Quran says, and he gave you, he granted you, he gave you sight, he gave you hearing, he gave you minds, perhaps so that you may become grateful, so that you thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What do you know? The Quran is basically telling the human being, what do you know to say there is no God? You came into this world with nothing. He extracted you from the womb of your mother not knowing anything. He brought you into this world. By the way, this is the whole philosophy and, and philosophy. It's called empiricism, right? The school of John Locke and others. That everything that you know in this world comes through your empirical senses. This verse in the Quran is talking about this entirely. He says, you came into this world not knowing anything. So how do you know? The Quran says, and he gave you Sight, hearing, and minds. In any case, the Quran, uh, the uh, Hadith continues. فَحْمِلْهُ عَلَى جَهَالَتِكَ بِهِ فَإِنَّكَ أَوَّلُ مَا خُلِقْتَ خُلِقْتَ جَاهِلًا When you were initially created, you were created ignorant. So attribute what you do not know, what you encounter and you don't understand. Attribute it to your ignorance. ثُمَّ عَلِمْتَ Then you learned. You were created ignorant initially. Then you learned. وَمَا أَكْثَرُ مَا تَجْهَلْ مِنَ الْأَمْرِ وَيَتَحَيَّرُ فِيهِ رَأْيُكْ وَيَضِلْ فِيهِ بَصَرُكْ And how many 
How much there is that you are unaware of and in which your opinions become confused and your sight lost. And then one day later, afterwards, you perceive it, you understand it. Okay, so inshallah from this, the, the, the conclusion, the, the clear conclusion from this is don't be afraid to say I don't know, especially as a teacher. We're talking about the duties of the teacher. Applies to everyone. But I'm specifically talking, inshallah, all of you are going to be teachers. Some of you for sure will be teachers. You will be formally teaching religion to others. I have no doubt about it. And most of you, if not all of you, you're going to be teachers informally. You all have people with whom you share knowledge, you share information. You will have people who look up to you for certain types of information including family members, including children and grandchildren and friends and others who are interested in learning about religion. You are all going to be in this position of being a teacher, being the source of information for others. So in all those cases, if you know, talk. If you don't know, don't be afraid and don't be shy of saying, I don't know, I'll find out. Okay, we'll come back to this inshallah later. Still in the spirituality of admitting ignorance. In Dua 16 of Sahifa Sajjadiyya, Imam Sajjad alayhi salam, this is a dua in which uh, the title is وَكَانَ مِن دُعَائِهِ عَلَيْهِ السَّلَامِ إِذَا اسْتَقَالَ Sometimes it's only called Dua al-Istiqala. And it's not really clear what that means. It's extraction, you know, to extract, to pull away from. He says, When the Imam wants to extract himself or to release himself from sins. Or when he beseeches with insistence, implores Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive Flaws and shortcomings. That's the title of the dua. It's not a very long dua, dua 16. In the traditional Sahifa Sajjadiyya, in there, there is this little passage. Imam Sajjad says, فَمَنْ أَجْهَلُ minni." So that's why I'm saying we're now talking about the spiritual dimension. We talked about the logical reasons why, the scientific objective reasons why, we should quickly admit our ignorance and take that as a position of you know, starting point, as our starting point. But there's also a spiritual dimension. This is what I find in the words of Imam Sajjad salam. He says, فَمَنْ أَجْهَلُ مِنِّي Who is more ignorant than I am? يَا إِلَٰهِ بِرُشْدِهِ وَمَنْ أَغْفَلُ مِنِّي عَنْ حَظِّهِ وَمَنْ أَبْعَدُ مِنِّي مِنْ إِسْتِصْلَاحِ نَفْسِهِ So who is more ignorant than I, my God, of his own right conduct. Rushd, as we said, is like your guidance or your righteousness or your virtue. The Imam says, who is more ignorant than I about how I'm supposed to behave? Why? So the Imam continues, who is more heedless than I of his own good fortune? Who is further than I for seeking to set himself right? And now the Imam is going to give the reason. Why does he say this? Of course he's not talking about himself. 
He's teaching us how to pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He says, حِينَ أُنْفِقُ مَا أَجْرَيْتَ عَلَيَّ مَنْ رِزْقِكْ فِي مَا نَهَيْتَنِي عَنْهُ مِنْ مَعْصِيَتِكَ The reason why the Imam says this, why am I the most ignorant of all those who are ignorant? Why does the Imam say that? So this is what we have to apply to ourselves. Does this apply or not? The Imam says, I am the most ignorant of all people. Of my conduct, of my virtue, of my guidance, of how I'm supposed to be. I'm the most ignorant. Why? For I spend the provision you have granted me in the disobedience you have pro- prohibited me from. You have told me these are things that are prohibited. They are haram. They're sins. They're red lines. Don't transgress them. I know they are prohibited. And the Imam says, I can't trespass them by myself. I'm nothing. What do I need? I need sustenance. I need ni'mah. I need blessing. I need to exist. And I need all the ni'm of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to exist. And how do I use them? To transgress the prohibitions. Right? That's what the Imam is saying. So why am I the most ignorant, the Imam says, and I spend the probi- the provision, the sustenance, the rizq, the ni'mah, right? Hina unfiq ma ajrayta alayya min rizqik. I spend what you have provided me with sustenance. So this is not about wealth. It's about everything. The time, the health, every blessing in our lives. How do we spend it? The Imam says, and I spend the blessings you have given me in the disobedience of what you have prohibited me to do. What are the things that you have prohibited? I take the sustenance you give me and I use it to disobey you. Okay, so this is to bring us back to, the Imam is talking about a more spiritual dimension. Is this ignorance or not? This is perhaps a more mystical or more spiritual understanding. When we say our initial position, our starting position is one of ignorance. So we can talk about it, you know, simply as information or what we would call epistemic ignorance. Do you have the information, the raw information or not? Fine, that's one. Here the imam is going to the core of our spirituality. He's saying the ignorance actually stems from somewhere else. When you forget why you exist and how you're supposed to be in this world, this is where your true ignorance stems from. So the ignorance of whether you have the information or not, whether you admit that you know or you don't know, actually stems from something much deeper, much more spiritual, much more mystical inside of you. It has to do with your relationship with yourself and with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Are you ignorant in the true sense? This is the true sense. Or are you in a state of remembrance? So in this case, the remembrance would be I remember that I am ignorant. I remember that I have shortcomings. I remember that I act with ignorance towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay? Maybe we'll go a little bit further and I'll stop a couple of minutes. We'll bring it back to something a little bit more practical, a lighter topic, and then maybe we'll end with this. The next topic, so now that we're done with the duty of the scholar to admit ignorance. Again, this is not comprehensive. We've touched on the topic. We'll come back to it a little bit later too. 
but generally speaking, I think we, we have a good understanding of this. The, then, the next one has to do with equality in teaching. So we said we're focused on teaching from different angles. One of the angles we find in some of the hadith has to do with equality in teaching. Imam al-Sadiq says, في هذه الآية ولا تصعر خدك للناس قال ليكن الناس عندك في العلم سواء So the verse, this is, this is Surah Al-Quman, verse 18. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَا تُصَعِّرْ خَدَّكَ لِلنَّاسِ تُصَعِّرْ is to, to raise. خَدَّك is your cheek. Don't raise your cheek in contempt, out of arrogance. That's what the Qur'an is saying. You know, we would say, you know, you raise your nose, you raise your cheek, the Holy Qur'an says here. In contempt, out of arrogance towards the people. That's it. This verse the Imam explained it. قال ليكن الناس عندك في العلم سواء. Let the people be in matters of knowledge to you equals. So, first, I think this applies when teaching. When you teach, everyone should be equal to you. You don't teach in a way that clearly gives favoritism to some over others. You have to show objectivity and equality. Otherwise, the teaching will suffer, the learning will suffer, and so on and so forth. Secondly, it applies when learning. Because the Imam is saying not only as a teacher, which is our focus, in matters of knowledge, everyone is equal to you. My respect to people based on knowledge is based on knowledge. I'm e- they're all equal. I treat them equally. If you demarcate yourself in a way, it's because you have more knowledge, less knowledge. Otherwise, everyone is equal. Okay? So when teaching, when learning, when I'm choosing between people, when I'm choosing between teachers, between scholars, everyone is equal. And the main criteria, therefore, is knowledge itself. Okay? That's one understanding of it. A very subtle point related to this hadith. And there are hundreds, I don't want to say thousands, I would say thousands, but I'm going to say hundreds of these types of ahadith where if it were not for Ahlul Bayt, this is not something that would ever come to mind. This interpretation would never come to mind as a meaning for this verse. The Holy Quran is talking in general. It's saying, and do not raise your cheek in contempt. That's it. The imam extracted from this a meaning and applied it specifically to knowledge. He said, The verse doesn't talk about knowledge. The verse is very general. And it's talking about arrogance. Okay, so that's a whole discussion, how the imam extracted this meaning from it. This is simply to refer to this idea that if you go back to the narrations of Ahlul Bayt they don't just explain the superficial meaning of the verses. There's a lot more to the verses and it only opens up once you go back to the verses of the Quran from the angle of Ahlul Bayt You will never find these unless someone has seen it and then they attribute it to themselves or others. Otherwise these meanings are not there. Superficially you can't extract these meanings simply by reading the verse. The meaning does not come from the words. There's more. But once it is presented to you, you say, yeah, of course, of course that's the meaning. 
the clear meaning in this verse, this was a more subtle aspect of this, the clear meaning of this verse has to do with other narrations. If you combine them with this one, you understand what the Imam is talking about. Equality in what? Equality in what you charge people. When people come to you and they want to learn and you charge them, don't charge someone more and someone less for the same content that you're presenting. Don't treat people differently because so-and-so is rich and so-and-so is poor and so-and-so is important and so-and-so is not. You're someone who's important, I'll teach you because it's good for me, for my reputation. Someone else comes and they want to learn, but no one knows them. I don't know if anyone will hear that I'm teaching so-and-so. This doesn't really grant me any you know, symbolic social status. Yeah, maybe I'm not going to be sharing the knowledge with so-and-so. No, when it comes to knowledge, everyone is equal. You grant it equally to all, and if you're charging, you charge equally the same way. So that it doesn't become something of a criteria, of a distinction that whether you have money or not, you can access the knowledge. It should be equally accessible to the one who has and the one who doesn't. Which brings us to another topic. We touched on it very quickly. Can you charge or not? You can, and this is proof. There's a lot of ahadith around this when you put them together. When the imams are saying, and be equal towards everyone. When it comes to knowledge, what's implied is when you charge them, charge them equally. Which doesn't mean charge them all very exorbitant price. Because of course you can't. Charge them all a price that because you won't have you won't have enough people. You have to charge enough that you have enough. So don't play around with your prices. Don't change the access to knowledge. Everybody should have the same access to your knowledge. Be equal. Be objective. Of course, there's a whole dimension of what we started the discussion with. The difference is if I'm teaching a topic that is advanced, of course I'm not going to grant equal access to an advanced topic to someone who doesn't have the prerequisites. But that's not a form of discrimination against this person. They are equally able to get access to this information, to this knowledge, if they go and acquire the prerequisites. There's no issue with that. The issue is, you know, I'm going to use a random criteria, an irrelevant criteria to prevent someone from accessing the knowledge. In that case, that's problematic. And that's what the imam is talking about. And he says this is stemming out of an arrogance. You're raising your cheek in contempt. This is a form of arrogance. I have knowledge and I will use it that way. I won't give people the same free access. I will be selective in who I give access to, not based on real criteria, perhaps based on social considerations, based on you know who has power, who rules, who has money, and so on and so forth. And this is how you ruin knowledge and its reputation and eventually religion too. Okay, I'm going to stop here. Inshallah, we'll continue. Next time we meet with a few other considerations related to the duties of teaching. Okay, so uh, prayers in about uh, 15 minutes. Yeah, let's stop here.